that you had a blessed celebration of Thanksgiving with you and your family. Hopefully you had an opportunity to devour some good food. I know that they're the typical Thanksgiving foods, but uh, how many of you are really turkey people? How many of you are more on the beef bandwagon? We got a few. We got a few beef, beef people, yeah. And, uh, you know, sweet potatoes, mashed potatoes. You got the uh, pumpkin pie. I'm more of a con pie guy myself. And uh, there's lots of food to be enjoyed, and I hope that you certainly had your fill. And we often use eating metaphors as ways to talk about things that satisfy us or, or things that we, we love or that we significantly enjoy. We devour books and TV programs we often cram for tests, like you're trying to find room for the mashed potatoes on your plate at Thanksgiving. You've probably heard uh, Grandma saying that her grandbabies were so cute she could just eat them up. So even though Jesus uses some striking language in this passage about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we're actually not too unfamiliar with something about what he means He's talking about where we look to for satisfaction. He's talking about where we go to fill up life and what desires and, and longings that we cultivate in our lives. Over the last two weeks, our messages from the Gospel of John have been entitled Welcoming Jesus and Judging Jesus. And in those two passages, we've learned that Jesus will not conform to our demands. He won't conform to our expectations. He is who he is, and he came to do something particular beyond our expectations. If he were to do what we demand, it would be like making a peanut butter sandwich when God had sent him to prepare prime rib. And Jesus was pushing people toward something better, toward prime rib, toward what was better than what they expected. But some people were unable to accept what Jesus was doing. Their own pride, their own position, their own religion, their own expectations, their own desires and longings sometimes got in the way of believing in Jesus. And to continue the metaphor today, we're going to discover that he's the food we should be eating you need to eat Jesus. And I wrestled with how to handle this passage because it's very long. It's 71 verses, in fact. And I thought about breaking it up, but it's clear John the Apostle meant to keep it together. He wants us to see a theme develop through the whole passage. And I originally wrote the message containing a reading of all 71 verses. But as you can imagine, that was very, very long. So I decided that we're going we're gonna to read parts of the story. We'll read the setup to the story and then key verses along the way. And this is not because the other verses are not important or because I thought I should cut out you know, some of God's words to make room for my own words or something like that. But in order to make space to examine the ideas of the passage, I needed to condense it. But I want to strongly encourage you that you would read the passage in its entirety for yourself. It won't take you too long to read 71 verses. And so if you would read John chapter 6 by yourself, maybe this afternoon, that would be fantastic. I also want to say that it gives me an opportunity to, to remind you about a relatively new ministry we called, called the Leftovers Podcast 
podcast, which is kind of an extension of the teaching and preaching ministry of Bethany. And so on that podcast every week, myself and another pastor discuss some of the things that couldn't fit in the Sunday morning service to try to help you understand some more context, some more application, some more depth to the passage from God's word. And so there's going to be a lot of additional content on that passage this week. And you can go to our website and go to the media tab. You'll see a podcast tab. And you can listen to it on the website. You can download it to your phone or mobile device and listen to it there and listen later. But it's going to be available Tuesday afternoon. And so if you have questions about the passage that aren't answered this morning, I would just encourage you to go and to listen to that. And two ideas from this passage will definitely be covered in that podcast. And those two ideas are determinism, that is, does God determine who believes in Jesus, which a cursory reading of this passage may seem to imply, but we can't cover the depth and and the breadth of that this morning, and the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, which if you come from a Catholic background, this passage may have been used to defend an idea that when you eat the bread and drink the blood, you're actually eating the, the flesh and blood of Jesus that's been transformed. It's the real flesh and blood of Jesus, and that that is what saves you, which we do not believe, and so I'll discuss that there. So make sure that you check that out, but if you have your copy of God's word, please turn to John chapter 6, and with hearts of faith and of expectation, let's begin to read John chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 1. It says this, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So Jesus, in the previous passage, was in Jerusalem, but now he's back up north in the home, his home region in Galilee, and the crowds are following him because they've seen signs that he's been doing. John highlights that the Passover is near, and since Jesus isn't in Jerusalem, and the passage doesn't describe Jesus celebrating the Passover, it's kind of an interesting note that John would, would mention that the Passover was near. In fact, it's the background that will help us to understand What's going on in this passage? So we need to go way back to the time of the Exodus from Egypt to understand the themes that pop up in the passage. During the Exodus, what was Israel rescued from? Slavery. And if you said slavery in Egypt, you're partially right. But they were also rescued from the wrath of God against sin. When the death angel came to Egypt, it passed over the houses of the Jews, not because they were Jews, but because they had sacrificed a Passover lamb, had smeared its blood on the doorposts and the lintel, and then had eaten the flesh of that lamb together as a family. They were rescued from the wrath of God and from death by the Passover lamb. Do you remember what John the Baptist called Jesus at John 129? He pointed to him and said to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is some of the imagery that we need to remember if we're going to accurately understand the the, the things that Jesus will say and the way that John is presenting it to us. Let's continue in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing what a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that is eight months' wages, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, 
But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus had compassion on the people. He wanted to meet their needs, but he also wanted to teach them something as well as to teach his disciples something. And we can see this right away when John comments that Jesus asked Philip where to get bread for so many because he wanted to test Philip. He wanted to see how much Philip understood of what he had already done and, and, and who Jesus was and what he could accomplish. And, and he wanted to, him to look for something beyond the obvious external provision that he could come up with himself. He wanted his disciples to look beyond the external to the spiritual. And when Jesus had done the miracle of feeding the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over. This wasn't a miracle of just enough. It was a miracle of more than enough. And the people interpreted what happened as a sign that Jesus was the prophet. Maybe the prophet Moses had said would come and be like him, be like a second Moses, and they wanted to make Jesus their king. Now we might think, oh, that's no big deal, it's just, it's just silly, people wanting to make Jesus his king, but consider how many people there were present. It says there were 5,000 men, and scholars estimate that if you include women and children, the total could be more than 20,000 people present. That's not an insignificant group of people with which to start a political revolution. You could do quite a bit of damage with that many people. These people looked at Jesus. They fit him into a preconceived category that they had in their minds and then surged with Passover pride, which was kind of like their 4th of July, to claim Jesus as their liberator from Roman oppression that they all so desperately longed for. Jesus would have none of it, and he withdrew Meanwhile, he sent the 12 apostles across the lake. And it says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now this may seem like an odd little aside since Jesus has multiplied bread, and he's going to talk about bread that comes down from heaven, but if the Passover and Exodus are in the background of this passage, then we need to think about another act by which God delivered his people that involved water. Do you remember what that was in the Exodus? when he parted the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, you can read how God opened the sea so that his people could cross on dry land and escape the Egyptians, and how God destroyed Pharaoh's army in the sea as they attempted to pursue Israel. In fact, God's power over the sea is a theme that spreads throughout the Old Testament, and Psalm 77, 19 stylizes the crossing of the Red Sea by describing what God did like this. Talking about God, it says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. 
And so this is another revelation of Jesus to his apostles of who he really is, the one who has the power over the sea and leads his people out of their bondage into a second exodus. But what will that exodus look like? What will it be? He wants to set his people free, but are his people able to understand his true intentions? Much like people today, they were more than happy to welcome a political leader who would rule over them if they would get what they wanted. They were happy for that kind of leadership, but would they receive the salvation that God was sending them? Would they be able to discern what salvation really meant? This passage answers that question. And so after getting a, a free meal and seeing that Jesus was able to provide for so many, it's little wonder that the crowds sought him out, continued to look for him. It took them a while to figure out where he went, but they finally located him on the other side of the lake in Capernaum, and Jesus began to teach the people in the synagogue. And that's when Jesus first pushes the people to think beyond what's immediately in front of them, what's obvious to their physical eyes, and he also pushes us. He pushes us to see that you can move from physical to spiritual food. He wants us to look beyond the obvious. Listen to how Jesus tries to push their understanding deeper. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. It may be easy to criticize the crowd for their focus on the literal bread that Jesus had given, and Jesus criticizes them for that, but we should probably see ourselves in Jesus' criticism. Obviously, they wanted more than just food. They wanted a king, and Jesus' criticism was that they took a sign like the one he gave, and they made it about their own desires. They fit Jesus into a category they already had in their own minds. And once again, we have a group of people who come to Jesus with a preconceived set of expectations and they can't see beyond their own expectations to let Jesus teach them. I wonder how often we do this in our lives. Do we think we are beyond getting caught up in the merely fleshly, physical matters of life? and missing the deeper spiritual realities that Jesus wants to teach us? Do our wants and desires never conflict with his? Are we always looking for his will and seeking to understand his priorities? Truthfully, we all still need to grow in our ability to see spiritual realities beyond the flesh. Jesus put it this, puts it this way in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, and life. We need to learn to see spiritual things and to seek spiritual things, to walk by faith and not by sight. It's not that we ought to neglect physical things. This is not an excuse to neglect or abuse yourself or others in the name of Jesus. When Jesus says that we should work for food that leads to eternal life, he doesn't mean that you could earn this yourself by doing some good thing. The crowd asked Jesus, what kind of work do we have to do to earn this food? They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God in verse 28? But their question misses the point. I like how Bible scholar D.A. Carson put it. His point was not that they should attempt some novel form of work, but that merely material notions of blessing are not worth pursuing. Merely material notions of blessing are not worth pursuing. 
Yet that's what we so often pursue, isn't it? There's a whole Christian industry built up around telling people how to get God's blessings, mostly his material blessings. We hear people trying to teach Jesus' name and, and attach that name to political candidate, candidates as if his primary purpose is our national politics. And then there are the everyday ordinary worries and cares and desires that keep us so busy and distracted seeking the physical and not the spiritual. And if there was some work that we could do to get this spiritual bread from God that gives eternal life, we'd be happy to do that work. If we could work for it, then we would feel that we deserve it and that we can control it. But Jesus defines what he means by work in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. There it is. The main theme of John's gospel. Believe in Jesus so you may have life. And here again, John wants to teach us what belief means. It means that we must learn to look beyond the merely physical to the spiritual, to trust Jesus. Jesus told the people this, and they demanded another sign in verse 30, which just shows they didn't understand what he was saying. Perhaps many of them didn't know how Jesus had already multiplied the bread. They knew he fed them, but they couldn't see. They were too far away to see how, and they wanted to see proof. Moses fed the people in the wilderness, they thought, for 40 years. Maybe they wanted someone who could feed them more than one meal. They wanted a king. But their demands revealed that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. If they did, they would have known that it wasn't Moses who fed anyone. God fed them. And the bread he fed them was just a shadow of the true spiritual bread to come, Jesus. What do we miss because we are led about by our desires and our limited expectations and even by our temptations rather than being led by the Spirit? This begs the question, what are you searching for? Are you looking for God to give you what you want? Are you pursuing your own ambitions and desires with little concern for God's direction? Do you consult God from time to time about your plans but fail to observe that real life comes from believing Jesus? Maybe the story of Mary and Martha can help us here from the Gospel of Luke. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. How about you? Are you driven and troubled by so many things that you're miss missing the good portion that Jesus has provided, that God has sent through his son Jesus. If it's hard for you to understand what this means, it was hard for them too. But Jesus kept pushing their understanding forward because he wants you to move from hunger to satisfaction. I'm sure that you've had the experience of wanting something, of looking forward to it, desiring it, and then being disappointed when you actually get it. Maybe you were looking forward to a meal or a vacation or you were saving up for a purchase and when you finally got what you wanted, it couldn't satisfy, like, satisfy you like you thought it would. Perhaps that's because the experience itself was disappointing. Or maybe the experience was fantastic but it was just so short and, and it didn't last very long. 
I have this feeling whenever we go on vacation, I want it to last. And I count down the days as they go, thinking, oh man, we only have four days left, three days left. And the lower they get, the more pressure I feel to squeeze as much out of those days as I can, to cram as much into them as I can get into them. But no matter what I do, they don't last forever. And in this passage, Jesus points out that so many of our pursuits are like this. We think we will be satisfied by something, but we're not. And the harder we try, the less satisfaction we have. But Jesus points us in another direction. John 6.35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The work of God is to believe in him, and if we come to him, we will no longer hunger or thirst. You can't help but hear the echo of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. She tried to fill her life with relationships and marriages and men because that's what culture told her would add value to her life and heal her and make her valuable and respectable, but she couldn't hold it together and kept having to go back to that empty well and look for more. But Jesus is the living water, and he's also the bread that came from heaven. Like Israel grumbling in the wilderness during the Exodus, even though God had met all their needs, was freeing them from slavery, the people that Jesus had fed now grumbled that Jesus said he was the bread that came down from heaven. And Jesus offered this explanation for their grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And this is where some people find evidence that God determines who will be saved. But in verse 45, Jesus offers his own definition of those who are drawn by God. It says this, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Those drawn, Jesus said, are those who have heard and learned. In John 5, 45 to 47, we saw that the religious leaders, the Jews, had heard they were experts in the law, yet they had not learned from the Father. If they had, they would have recognized that Jesus was from the Father and they would have come to him. They heard, but they did not learn. Jesus wants people to hear and learn. He wants them to see and perceive. He wants them to hear and believe. He wants them to believe that he is the bread of life, bread that satisfies. And you can be sure of this, that if you believed in Jesus, he will not lose you. In verse 37, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now that may sound obvious on a, on a theological level. Of course, if we come to Jesus, he's strong. He won't lose us. Of course, Jesus won't let you go if you have believed in him. But our theology needs to meet our real lives because our belief about God shapes our lives. We may sometimes wonder if Jesus can keep us. It sounds strange to put it that way, I know, but let me see if I can illustrate this. When I was a child, I trusted my dad with abandon. I would jump off walls and off of playground equipment and just trust that he would be there and he would catch me and he would not drop me, and he never did. However, as I got older, there were times when I fell and he wasn't around and I learned that falling hurts. So the next time I was stuck on a high obstacle at the park and couldn't get down, there was hesitation. 
What if he dropped me? What if I couldn't jump far enough to reach his arms? Would he be able to spring forward and grab hold of me and protect me? I have grown bigger. Is he still strong enough to hold my weight? All of those things caused me to hesitate, but when I jumped, my dad never let me down. And so it is with Jesus. We may sometimes wonder if we have the strength to jump into his arms. We may think that our sin, our stubbornness, our misunderstanding, our circumstances, our feelings make us unworthy of him and he will let us go. I'm sure you've had this thought yourself like most of us have. I know that God loves others. I believe that God is love, but I don't know if he can love me. I don't feel worthy of love. But brothers and sisters, the good news is that if you come to Jesus, he will not let you go. He will catch you. He will hold on to you. He will satisfy you. So what ought we to do? We should abide in him. As verse 56 goes on to say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And if you abide in Jesus by coming to him and staying in him, you will move from hunger to satisfaction. And I think that this quote may be helpful in that regard. It's from Bible teacher Gary Burge, and he says, being fed by God is so simple that in a world congested with busyness, it has become hard to understand. Like the pursuit of joy, the more we run after it with strategies and plans, the more it seems to flee. It is not gained by ministry accomplishments, righteous efforts, or the intellectual mastery of the Bible. Being fed by God requires a conversion of thinking, a discovery that God is eager to give life and renewal to anyone who can listen in simplicity and piety. The final push that Jesus made on those who were listening was to move from offense to trust. Jesus said something that pushed most of the people listening beyond where they were willing to go, and so they were offended. Here's what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What Jesus describes here is the kind of faith, the kind of trust that gains life from him. Remember, through these various stories, John is trying to teach us the true nature of faith or of belief. What kind of faith abides in Jesus? It's the kind that eats him up. Now, why would John use that imagery? Well, because we saw at the beginning the passage uses Passover imagery, and Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is providing a new exodus, an escape. But it wasn't an escape like everyone expected. It wasn't an escape from Roman oppression. It wasn't an escape from their poverty. It wasn't an escape from what they felt was wrong with their lives in the external sense. It was an escape from the oppression of sin and death and out from under the wrath of God. And those who heard Jesus were not so stupid as to think that he was actually suggesting cannibalism. 
They knew that he wasn't talking about actually trying to take a bite out of his arm or his leg, but they knew he was suggesting something that was still offensive to them. He was saying that he should become their sustenance, that belief in him should be what satisfies, that they should be so engaged with him, so bought into his purpose, so taken with what he said, that it was like they were eating him up. They were devouring him. That is the kind of belief that John is describing. And of course, This means that you drop your own thoughts and ideas about what Jesus is and who he's supposed to be, and instead you adopt Jesus' own ideas about who he is and what he is to be doing. And there were many who were unwilling to do that. They had an idea about what the Messiah should be, what he would come to do for them, and Jesus didn't fit the bill. And they were offended by him, and many of them left. Maybe the prime example of this offense The one who's singled out in this passage is Judas. John 6, 70 to 71 says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Apparently, Judas became so offended that Jesus didn't do what he thought the Messiah ought to do that he eventually sold him out and betrayed him. We spoke last week about how our religious expectations of Jesus may sometimes get in the way of what he wants to do. The Bible teacher Gary Burge again comments, saying, hearts that are religiously inclined can become angry when the formulas change, when things don't show up as predicted, when conventions become upset. But Jesus prods us to move from offense to trust. No, he is not going to be what you expect because your expectations are wrong. But you should still trust him. Don't trust the idea of Jesus. Don't trust what you would like him to be. Don't trust what you saw about Jesus on a television program. Trust the Jesus you meet in his word, that you come to and you read and you understand by the spirit who he is and what God sent him to do. Actually trust him. Trust him so much that it's like you're devouring him. Trust him so much that it's like, without this, I can't live. That's what Jesus was telling them. He wasn't saying to them that they were going to actually take a bite of him. He wasn't even talking to them about communion, some kind of future idea that they weren't able to understand at the moment. He was telling them, trust Jesus with this kind of intensity and this kind of fullness, that it's like he sustains your very life because he does. Feed on him. He's the real bread that comes down from heaven. Don't be offended by that. Be fed by it. Everything else will leave you wanting. And so we find in this passage that you should dine on Jesus. We welcomed Jesus two weeks ago. Last week we saw that people were judging Jesus. This week we're told that we need to dine on Jesus. And we do this by moving from physical to spiritual food, by moving from hunger to satisfaction, and by moving from offense to trust. Have you dined on Jesus? In the end, passages like this challenge us because we're often left with questions. There are things that we wish we could ask Jesus, like, what are the best practices for trusting you? Or what about when you ask something and it doesn't make sense to me? Or How can faith grow if it's not a work and I can't control it? And so we sometimes 
have questions that Jesus raises as we hear him say things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus, what does that mean? And he didn't go on in this passage to describe exactly what practices should look like. Are you supposed to pray for so long every day? Is it a formula whereby you go to church so many times a week and that's what it means to feed on Jesus? No, because it's more direct than that. He doesn't mean go through something else to get to me. He means make your life about me. But even when we have these questions, Peter provides us with a fantastic example when our faith is challenged or even Jesus offends us by not presenting himself as the savior we expected. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You may not be able to answer every question about faith and following Jesus, but stick with him. He has eternal life, and believing him sometimes means you don't abandon him because he failed to answer every question to your satisfaction immediately, but trusting that he is the source and answer even if you don't yet understand it all. This has been a hallmark of the faith of saints for a long, long time. Do we think that God will give us everything we need to understand all the riches of his grace all at once? No, but Jesus pushes us deeper and deeper. And the deeper he pushes us, the more questions we have. And we have have an option then. Am I going to take offense because Jesus has not come as I expected and answered every one of my questions? Or do I say, you know what? There are a lot of unanswered questions. But if I've come to learn one thing, it's this. Jesus has the answers even if he hasn't given them to me yet. Jesus has the answers even if I'm offended by the answers. And there is what eating Jesus means. It means that we stay with Jesus even when his answers offend us. Even when he says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Even when he hits us with things like, You can't serve two masters. No one can serve God and money. Even when he hits us with hard sayings that you need to take up your cross and follow me. And our flesh strikes back and says, that's offensive, Jesus. That's not the kind of savior I expected. I expected a savior like the one that I heard preached on TV yesterday who was gonna give me more money and a big house and a beautiful wife and straight teeth. That's the savior I wanted, Jesus. And Jesus offends those expectations. And the question is, what are you gonna do when Jesus offends you? Have you eaten of him so fully that you'd say, look, I, I don't like this Jesus, It doesn't taste good to me, Jesus. You've offended me, Jesus, but I know there's no other meal that satisfies. So I'm gonna keep eating. I'm gonna keep digging in. I'm gonna keep trusting you even when you've offended my sensibilities of how this should go and what my life should look like and what religion should look like and what coming to you should be like. I'm sticking with you, Jesus. You have the words of eternal life. Where else can I go? I want to ask you to close your eyes for just a moment today. Perhaps you've never 
You've never eaten Jesus like this before in your life. You've never been challenged to do something more than just, you know, say that you believe something, maybe pray a prayer, say that you, you, have, you agree with some statement, and then move on with your life. Today, I hope that if that's you, if you don't have a genuine faith and relationship with Jesus, you will see in what we've read today that Jesus does not come to you and offer you some kind of quick, cliche way out of hell. That's not what he came to do. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin and to receive that sacrifice, just like the Passover lamb was sacrificed and then eaten. We must eat. And that doesn't mean that you're a cannibal, you take a bite of Jesus. It's not talking about uh, the Catholic way of doing the, the Eucharist or communion. It's talking about how do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe in him as some kind of vague idea that somebody told me and that I think is some kind of placebo for my life? Or do I believe in Jesus that is like eating him up? It's saying I'm consumed with Jesus because he's got the words of eternal life. He's got the satisfaction. He's got the things that only God can give. Am I, have I taken Jesus in that way? If you haven't had that kind of faith, that says, you know what, I may find this offensive. I may not like it when God says there's only one way to the Father, and it's through my son, Jesus. I may not like it when he confronts my sin and says, if you're walking in, in drunkenness and in envy and in pride and in sexual immorality and in slander and in envy, if those things characterize your life, you have no part in the kingdom of heaven. I don't like it when he offends me like that. But you've never come to a place where you've said, I'm gonna do more than slap a Jesus sticker on my life and said, I might be offended, but where else am I gonna to go to find life? He has real life, and so if he's got real life and I'm offended, maybe the problem's not with him. Maybe actually the problem is with me. Maybe it's my sin and my rebellion that is offended when I meet the righteousness and the truth of Jesus. And maybe what I need to do is not push Jesus away, but say, Jesus, I'm offended, but my offense has taught me today that I'm wrong and I need to know you. And if that's you, You've been offended by God, but you've never come to Jesus and said, in spite of the offense, I trust you, Jesus, because you gave your life for me. You died for my sin, and God raised you from the dead, and I believe you. In spite of how hard my flesh might resist it, and I may not like it, I have heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, and I want to hold on to him, because where else can I go? If you've not had that kind of faith today, I want to invite you to express that kind of faith in Jesus, to move beyond your offense at God's judgment against sin and to move into the love of God that satisfies and he has shown that it can satisfy because he was willing to give his son on your behalf. If you've never had faith in Jesus like that, I'm going to ask you to do something simple but bold. And I don't want to make this another cliche moment in your life, but I do want to pray with you. And I want to give you the opportunity to pray with some prayer partners in just a moment. And so if that's you, you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, you've never said, I have grabbed hold of him by faith. I believe in him in spite of my offense. And you'd like to make that confession of faith this morning, believing in Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to do this. Would you just lift up your hand if you don't have that kind of relationship with God through Jesus and you wanna believe in him today? Thank you, sir. Is there anybody else? You don't have that kind of, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Is there anybody else? You don't have that kind of relationship with God in which you've held on to him in spite of the offense and you wanna believe in him, trust him today. Thank you, sir. I'm gonna pray, and as I do, 
My words can't save you. I can't save you. Only Jesus can. And so I want to help you express faith in him. But I want to encourage you, if you've lifted your hand, make this your prayer. You, you make it your heartfelt plea to God. And he will save you. Heavenly Father, I come to you today in the name of your son, Jesus. I've heard the good news that you sent your son to die for me, that he's the sacrifice for my sin. I've heard the good news that you raised him from the dead. I've heard that he's the only way to satisfaction, that he's the bread of life. Today, I believe it. Lord, I've resisted. I've pushed back. I've been offended at you. I've not wanted to hear what you have to say, but today, by your grace, you've allowed me to hear and I respond by faith and trust him. Lord, I don't want to respond with trust that just takes his name on my lips, but with a trust that says, I'm taking him in, I'm believing, I'm holding on, and I'm giving my life to him. Today, Lord, I give my life to you. My failures, my faults, my flaws, all of it, I give it to you. I trust you to forgive, and I trust you to restore. And today I'm asking you, will you give me the bread of heaven? Will you give me Jesus? Will you give me the words of life that satisfy Lord, today I need you to repair, to heal, to restore, to set me free from my past, to forgive my sin and my shame. And I believe in Jesus, you can and you will. And so I come to you to receive eternal life. And I trust you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Prayer partners, would you come and just stand on the sides if you would? If you're one of our pastors or prayer partners, would you come and just stand on the sides? And I want to ask you to respond this way. If you raised your hand and, and you responded in just a moment, I want to ask you to come down and, and meet with and speak to one of our prayer partners. They've got a book that they want to give you. They'd love to pray with you, help you understand how do I follow Jesus? What do I do from here? But for the rest of us, I want to ask you to do this. Maybe as you've heard the word of God this morning, there's something in your life where you'd say the Holy Spirit is tugging on me saying you need to look beyond the physical to the spiritual you need to look for the bread that actually satisfies and and not the stuff you've been looking to that that is short-lived and can't heal and can't restore and you want to make a place today for a moment to dine on Jesus so to speak to just be in his presence to wait on him to say Lord I've been looking to other things for satisfaction that cannot satisfy but today I come to you I know you have the words of life maybe the Holy Spirit has put something very clearly in your heart this morning where you'd say I haven't been listening like I should and you want to make a place an altar a place of prayer of meeting with the Lord this is not the walk of shame and this is not a spot of shame this is a place of meeting with the Lord this is a table to dine with Jesus and to dine on Jesus to use the language that he used would you make a table with him today for a moment would you make a place of prayer before you go we have a few moments left in service would you make a place to to seek him to hold on to him to trust him to know him would you stand with me congregation if that's you as we begin to pray, you just find, a, you find your way forward and make a place of prayer. Let's seek the Lord together for a few moments. Make a table in his presence. Lord, today we come to you. We come to your table. We thank you that you've supplied all that we need. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a place to, to come and to, to have real life the bread of heaven, the, the, the words of eternal life spoken to us. We thank you, Lord, that you come and you prepare a place where we can meet with Jesus. Today, Lord, we want to spend a few moments seeking you. Sometimes, Father, we confess that our expectations of you aren't real. They're not what you have. They're what we have. They've been manipulated by our flesh and by our own temptations, that our expectations of who you are, what you should do, how you should respond to us, how you should respond in the world and fix situations, that, that we've learned from the world what we should expect. But we haven't learned from you. 
We've learned from our flesh and our desires, but we've not been with Jesus and been eating him, taking him in. We pray for your forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would help us when we've got a sort of loosey-goosey faith that hasn't taken hold of you as strongly as we ought to. Lord, that's looking to other places and to other things to satisfy, that is, that is looking to things that cannot bring us hope and joy, that cannot provide the peace that we need, that can't give us the fullness that we want to experience. And rather than devouring you and holding more tightly to you, we have instead looked to other things to try to fill us up. Please forgive us. Lord, I, there are probably some here who have been looking to sinful things to fill them up. And they're left empty every time. Today, Lord, I pray that they would hear your call to come and to confess, to believe, and to receive the fullness of life that you desire to give. Lord, I pray that they would not withhold and hold back thinking that they'll try one more time to be satisfied with things that cannot satisfy. I pray that they would not wait to see if one more time will be what does the trick, but they would know that you have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else for them to go. I pray, Jesus, that you'd bring healing and forgiveness, that you'd bring freedom. Jesus, we have seen in your word today that you are the Passover lamb, and you bring freedom that is deeper than often the external freedoms we're looking for. Freedom to spend money, freedom in our, in our social lives, freedom in, in our thought lives, and we're looking for all kinds of freedom. But Lord, we have not experienced the spiritual freedom of redemption from our sin and slavery to it. Lord, I pray that today you would grant that liberty and that freedom once again, that you would help us not to hold to the things that actually actually bind us and not to return again to the things that enslave us, but instead to partake of the Passover lamb of Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world and who leads us in another exodus and sets us free and makes us right with God. Help us, Lord, not to continually look to the things of this world to satisfy and to provide, but instead, Lord, to look to you. We wait for you today, Jesus, because we do not want to be guilty of merely listening to our flesh that says, go, leave, don't listen, don't wait. We wanna look by your Holy Spirit and allow you to speak to us. And so for a moment longer, Lord, we wait in your presence. Would you speak very clearly? Holy Spirit, I know you're able to apply your word into people's lives. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening in their thought lives. I don't know what's happened this week. I don't know what things they're trying to hide from you but you're able to apply your word in a way that I can't, more direct and more specific. Holy Spirit, I've prayed and trusted that you do that right now. Will you right now use your word and meet people in a profound and deep way that brings conviction, that brings healing, that brings joy, and that brings the satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus, the fullness of life that can only be found in him. Lord, we thank you for that. We love you, Jesus. Help us to be people that dine at your table, that eat your flesh, drink your blood, and hold on to the only way of real life. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this. Thank you for the provision you've made for us by your cross, by your death. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. If you want to spend a few moments in prayer, like someone to pray with you. Our prayer partners are available. Otherwise, have a great week. We will see you again next Sunday when we gather to worship. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.